Students, we are so glad that you are back. Love having you back in the worship, especially all the energy you bring. That was a wonderful worship team. Wow, Tim, awesome. You rocked it. That was great. Okay, uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter this semester. If you want to turn there, find it, fold the page down. We'll be back and forth there all semester long. We're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. But as we begin, uh, I want to give you a little, illustration, a little illustration here. For centuries, millions of immigrants have come to this country. And they are looking for a better life. They're looking for the good life. They have uh, great courage. They make a lot of sacrifices to leave behind their own cultures, their own language, to board a plane or board a ship, and to come to this country. And they're looking for something. I am the grandson of immigrants. This is uh, my grandfather, the li- is the little boy there, right in the middle. Uh, he came uh, from Sweden uh, when he was uh, in his early 20s. You'll notice that, that none of them are smiling. It's, I guess they didn't feel like they had the, the good life at that point when they were being photographed. So in his 20s, uh, roughly early 20s, he came to America and he immigrated to America. He came through Ellis Island and he landed in Washington State. A few years later, my grandmother also came from Sweden. And the two of them met here in the U.S., and they married, and they decided to stay here. They decided that this is the place where they could find the best life, the good life. They were looking for something that they couldn't find in their homeland. Did they find it? Did they discover the good life? Did they even know what they were looking for? Were they looking for the right thing? Were they defining the good life in the right way? In order to find out what residents of Bryan College Station think about the good life, we sent one of our staff members down to the hub of culture in College Station, down to the local HEB, and, um, <laughs> and we asked some folks who were passing through, what do you think the good life is? The good life, period. What, if you had blueprints for that, what would you put on it? The good life, I would, I would say definitely college. And right here we have come for attending Texas A&M. So we're probably we're looking for the good life in Texas. Work hard, party harder. What, is, what does a good life mean to you? Um, surrounded by people that love me and care about me. And um, I'm doing something that I love. I'm doing good in school. Having freedom. Uh, freedom to choose. Freedom to do what you want to do. Uh, the good life in Texas. Uh... Aggie's winning, I guess. All the stuff you learn in kindergarten. All the easy things. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Um, you know, be nice to your friends. You know, freedom to work. Freedom to have your own business if you want to. The freedom to have different religions and, and everything that you appreciate freedom-wise in this country that we have. Just being financially stable and uh, just like having good health. It's not complicated, you know. And people just try to make it like it's a... Like, there's something hard about it, but you just uh, got to go to the basics. Um, have you heard the, the slogan in Brian, it's a good life Texas style? Have you heard that? Okay, so what does a good life, individually, what does a good life mean to you? Uh, financial stability, good job, and you know, happy family life. Um, so if that is the good life, is that is, would you characterize your life like that? Yeah, actually, I would right now at this point. I mean, there's times where I'm quest- I question it, but I would say right now, today, yes, I, I think so. Would you say that you, uh, if, you know, if that was your blueprint, would you say that you're hitting all the check marks? Would you say you're, be- you're living the good life? <laughs> well, I try to. <laughs> it's, um, 
it's harder than it sounds, I guess. But um, yeah, I like to think I, I do. Do you notice a common thread? Through everything that they said, uh, it was all circumstantial. Right? They said a lot of really wonderful things. Uh, financial security, family, freedom, good job. Aggie's winning, of course. <laughs> but you notice it was all circumstantial. Everything that they said had a, a high degree of uncertainty in it. Uh, we, we're hoping and praying that the Aggies win this semester, Right? And right now, our guys, you know, the last several weeks, they've been out in 105-degree weather doing two-a-days, and they're working really hard so that they can win. But there are a lot of, there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, a semester comes and things happen that you can't control. Good job. Well, that would be wonderful, but I, I hope and pray for all of you students that uh, you do really well in school and you finish your time here, and as soon as you graduate, you've got a great job, but maybe you're going to graduate during a recession and there's nothing out there. Or maybe you're going to get a job and then a recession hits and you lose that job. And you have to look again. There's a lot of uncertainty. Or what if you got all of these things? Family, friends, financial security, Aggies winning national championships every year. (laughs) Then what? Hey, then what? Because life ends the same point for all of us. And then we've got all of eternity to reflect upon the question, did we actually live the good life? Did we answer the question correctly? Did we really know what a good life was? Well, fortunately, we can go to the author of life and we can ask him, God, what is the good life? You designed us and you designed life. What is it? What does it mean? And God answers very simply, the good life is to imitate the life of Christ. The good life is to imitate the life of Christ. Jesus Christ lived really well. I think we could make the case that nobody lived better than Jesus lived. He experienced more joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning and purpose and wonderful relationships than anyone who has ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus Christ lived the best life, the perfect life. He really lived the good life along with rejection and crucifixion. But it was still the good life. Peter's going to focus on just this topic. He's going to explain to us how to have a, a, a beautiful life, or as he's going to describe it, uh, this excellent conduct, this, this wonderful life. And he's going to say that it is possible because God has chosen you for this very purpose. God has chosen you to live the good life. I want us to read together in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And I've actually put it up here on a slide for us, because I want us to all read the same translation for these first two verses this morning. This is the ESV. I usually use the NASB, but I think in these two verses, ESV gives you a better sense of what Peter's actually saying. So I'm going to read this to you. Peter begins, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect. What does that mean? What does it mean to be elect? 
What does it mean to be chosen? It's actually a pretty simple concept. We've all experienced it in our growing up years when we were standing on the playground and they were two self-appointed captains. And they looked out at the mass of humanity of the first grade class or the second grade class or the third grade class and they began to choose. They began to select. And they didn't select everyone. They chose as they decided to choose. That, that, that's choice. That's election. We've all experienced that. It's a really common biblical idea. As a matter of fact, let me give you a few illustrations of this. The nation of Israel was chosen. They were elect. God chose them so that they would be uh, his people, that they would be in a special relationship with him, and that they would become a kingdom of priests. That is, that they would be uh, an intermediary between all of the rest of the nations and God. They would draw nations to God. And so he chose that particular nation. The Levitical priests were chosen so that they would be intermediaries between the nation of Israel and God. To keep the nation in fellowship with God so that the nation could fulfill its purposes to be a light to all of the rest of the nations. Jeremiah the prophet, he was elect or he was chosen because the Levites and the nation weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And so God chose him to warn them and to guide them to restore fellowship with the Father so that they could be a light to the nations. So that they could proclaim the excellencies of God who was calling all people into a relationship with him. After the nation was exiled because of their sin, God chose a pagan king, Cyrus. And he appointed him that he would spread out and have this vast kingdom. And he would have so much power that he could take the nation of Israel that was in exile. And he could send them back to Israel so that they could rebuild the temple. So that they could rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So that they could once again be a kingdom of priests and a light to the nations to draw all people into a relationship with God. God chose Jesus Christ so that he would come and he would live on this earth and he would model the perfect life. And even after modeling the perfect life, be rejected by the world, be crucified and died so that people could be reconciled to a relationship with God. The term election is also used for those who are chosen by God for salvation. Those who are chosen for an eternal relationship with God, an unending relationship with God. And this is what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter chapter 1. To be elect means to be chosen for a very specific purpose. And Peter writes to this group of people, he says, You are the the elect of God, the elect exiles of the dispersion scattered throughout Asia Minor or what is now Turkey. God has chosen you. Now, as we begin this discussion, we have to ask ourselves, why is election necessary anyway? Why does God have to choose? After all, we believe that Jesus Christ died and he paid the penalty for all sins, for all people, for all time. And we believe that God desires all men and women to come into a relationship with him. So why does God need to choose? Why does he need to elect? I want to take you back to the playground and imagine you've got the two captains standing there and they've got the first grade class gathered all around and they're about to begin selecting and the class looks at them and they turn and they all run away and they say we don't want to play your game and so everybody leaves the field and they're the captains standing alone on the field and they can't play their game because everyone's left that is in a nutshell apart from election the story of humanity God loves these creatures that he has made men and women who are made in his image and he longs to have a relationship With them. And yet, left to themselves, they all run off the field. 
and say, no, God, we, we, don't, we don't want to play your game. We don't want to worship you. We want to do anything but worship you. Romans chapter 1, Paul wrote, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. God has revealed himself to mankind. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. And they said, God, we want to do anything but worship you. We'll worship birds and plants and trees and insects. We'll, we'll worship ourselves. We'll worship anything, but we do not want to worship you. And so apart from God reaching down and choosing some to have a relationship with him, all would run away from God. And so God, in his grace and his kindness, chose. He elected. And Peter describes for us how that process works. I want you to read with me again verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Peter says God's election happens through three things. First, the basis is the foreknowledge of God the Father. The sanctification or the setting apart of the Spirit. And then third, the cleansing of Jesus Christ. What does it mean that God has foreknown? It just means he knew it before it happened. God knows things before they happen. And what exactly does God know? Well, he knows everything. (laughs) He knows the end from the beginning, the prophets tell us. He is eternal. He stretches out. He transcends time. He knows all things that have been, all things that will be, even all things that could be. Psalm chapter 139 puts it in poetic form. The psalmist wrote to God, he said, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Even before I was born, God, you knew absolutely everything about me. You saw my unformed substance. You marked out the days that would go in front of me. You prepared good works that I would walk in them. You knew all things that would be and all things that could be. You knew absolutely everything. And so I ask myself, why then did God choose me? Did he look down the hallways of time and say, Ah, you know, that one Brian, he's a little better than most. I think I'll pick him. Well, that's what happened on the playground, right? The best kids, the best athletes, they got picked. The other ones stood to the side. But that's not how God chooses. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul wrote, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. He chose us because of love. He chose us because of love. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, Troy read earlier. Not because he looked down the hallways of time and he saw, some are better than others, some will choose me. Some are kinder, some are more receptive. It wasn't on that basis whatsoever. 
Romans chapter 9 talks about this theme of election. And it says that God chose Jacob rather than Esau while these twins were still in their mother's womb. And they had done absolutely nothing good or evil. God said, that's the one that I choose through whom I'm going to bless all nations. So why did God choose me and not my neighbor? I can definitively tell you I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) I don't know. Because the sovereign creator of the universe has chosen not to reveal that. I don't know. Ever wrestled with that? (laughs) I have. I've struggled and wrestled with that question and I've wondered. God, that just doesn't seem quite just to me. You know, we're not the first ones to really wrestle with that question. The Apostle Paul apparently got hit with that question everywhere he went and preached. He got asked that over and over and over again. So when he wrote the book of Romans, he anticipated that. And he says, I know that you're going to ask me, doesn't that mean that God is unjust? And he he says, absolutely not. That doesn't mean that God is unjust. Because God is the potter and we are the clay and he has the right to do whatever he will because he is God and we have the choice to worship. Justice for us would mean that God would just let us run off the field and keep running. And keep pursuing all of our foolish idols and worship anything other than God. And justice would mean that he wouldn't chase after us. But instead, in God's kindness and in his mercy, in fact, he calls out to all. And he invites all to have a relationship with him. And we're told in scripture he also chooses and he elects. And he never unravels that mystery for us. But he says he does it not because we are any better than anyone else, but because of God's love. So why are we starting with what a, such a controversial subject? You know, beginning of the semester and you're you know, hope, hoping people that will, will visit and stay? <laughs> well, you know, we're stuck with it because we're studying First Peter and that's where Peter starts, so we've got to start there and we have to talk about it. That's why we're starting there. But the fact of the matter is it was not controversial at all for Peter's first readers. They picked up this letter that was sent from Peter And they didn't get into a theological debate because there were no Calvinists and there were no Arminians. There were believers who were living out in the world and trying to identify themselves with Jesus Christ. And when they did identify with Jesus Christ, you know what happened to them? They were persecuted for their faith and they were suffering. And so Peter writes to remind them, you are hated by the world, but you are loved by God. He chose you. Because he loves you. And that's why Peter brings this up. He doesn't bring it up to stir up an incredible theological debate and discussion and dissension. And to create Calvinists and Arminians. But to show us that our God is sovereign and he's also good. And it is in the foreknowledge of God, the Father. The Father. For some of us that... that, that concept of father doesn't always stir up these wonderful and warm connotations. But as a worshiper of God, you've got to allow God to rewire the way that you think about God. He is father. And because Jesus Christ has died for us and he's made this perfect access, now we call out to him as as Abba, father. Which is the Aramaic term for daddy. As a little child comes and climbs into father's lap and says, daddy, daddy. It's a term of intimacy. It's what I want my kids to call me. I I don't like it when they call me dad. I'm going to call me daddy. I don't want them to ever outgrow that. I want them to be 
18, 19, 21 years old, like some of you, and I want them to sit down and say, hey, daddy, I want them to call me daddy. Because I want them to feel that warmth of love and intimacy. And Peter says, daddy has chosen you. The world has rejected you, but he has chosen you according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, knowing absolutely everything about you, all the mistakes and failures you would, you would commit, all the sins you would do, all your deficiencies and your strengths, and he chose you. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, he says, according to the sanctification of the Spirit. That word to sanctify means to, to set apart, to mark out Same word from which we get the word saint. It means holy one. And in this context, it doesn't mean that we're actually behaving any differently from the world. It just means that the Spirit reached down into our lives and marked us and set us apart. Now, holiness is going to be a concern for Peter. He's going to say, be holy because God is holy. He's going to get into that issue. Right now, what he's saying is, chronologically, this is what happened. God knew all things, and he foreknew you, and he chose you. God the Father did, and he commissioned the Spirit to go and to mark you out and to set you apart for himself so that you would obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, I want you to keep your place here in 1 Peter and turn back with me to Exodus chapter 24. One of the things you're going to notice as we go through the book of 1 Peter is that he uses all kinds of allusions to the Old Testament. And one of the things that he's doing is he is trying to help uh, the people of God in his time as the church to understand that there's a continuity between God's people in the Old Testament and now God's people in the New Testament. God's people under the Old Covenant and God's people under the New Covenant. That there's a continuity there in the way that God interacts with his people. And so he uses an allusion here in 1 Peter chapter 1 that goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 24. Let's begin reading in verse 3. It says, Then Moses came and he recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said again, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all of these words. Whenever a covenant was made, a biblical covenant, there was this, this shedding of blood. And the shedding of blood bound the two parties together. And so God gives them the stipulations or the terms of this covenant. This is the old covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant. And they're presented before the people and the people say, we promise we will obey. And so then the blood is taken of the bull and it's sprinkled upon the people. And it binds them to God through this covenant. It creates an obligation for them through this covenant. Peter picks up this imagery and he says, now you are going to be bound through Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ through a covenant. 
And what that means is, as these people promised, we will obey. You need to obey Jesus Christ. And to obey Jesus Christ, we know, means first and foremost, believe. Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, talks about the obedience which is faith. To enter into a covenant with Jesus Christ, what you have to do is believe. These people who were wandering around in the wilderness already had a relationship with God because they had believed. Now they were entering into this covenant that required them to obey certain stipulations. As we enter into a new covenant, as people who have failed and who have sinned, we are called to obey Jesus Christ, that is, believe. And the moment that we believe Jesus Christ, we are sprinkled with his blood. Okay, a blood, we're told in the book of Hebrews, that is far better than the blood of the old covenant. Because it's a blood that never grows old. It does, doesn't dry out. It doesn't have to be re-sacrificed over and over. The blood of Jesus Christ is permanent, and it fixes you into a permanent relationship with God. And so the moment that we are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed from all of our sins, and we are united with Christ. We are identified with Christ We belong to Christ. That is the gospel. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the entire debt of your sin is washed away by the blood of Christ. And his blood unites you permanently to him so that you have a permanent relationship with God that cannot be undone because it's not on the basis of deeds which you have done in righteousness. God foreknowing all of your failures in the future didn't say, if you fail like this or this or this, you will be removed from this covenant. No, it's blood that grips you and will not let you go. And so I exhort you, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ, if you have never entered into that covenant this morning, believe, trust. Call out to God and say, God, I believe that the blood of Christ is enough to take away all of my sins and to unite me to you forever. That is the purpose for which God has chosen. So that we would obey Jesus Christ, that is, believe, and be sprinkled with his blood, that is, united with him forever. Turn back with me now, 1 Peter chapter 1, and notice how Peter finishes up this part of the greeting. He says, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit who set you apart so that you would obey Jesus Christ, that is, believe in him, be sprinkled with his blood. Now he blesses them and he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. My translation says, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. But what it literally says is, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May you experience all all of the best that God has designed for you as men and women created in his image. May grace God's favor that you don't deserve, God's power to live like Jesus Christ, God's peace that is shalom, the fullness of blessing. May it not just be added into your life, but may it be multiplied to you over and over and over again. May you live all of the richness, the good life that God has designed. And how do you do that? By identifying with Jesus Christ in absolutely everything. That's how you experience the best of life. And you need to realize that the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ and you are identified permanently with Christ, you will never fit into the world any longer. You will never fit into the world any longer. 
And one of our greatest struggles as Christians is that we're always trying to fit in to the world. We're afraid to stand out for Christ. But we are different. I want you to look again. Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter says, this is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, one who also has been chosen by God, not on the basis of any deeds, which I had done, not on any qualifications. I was a fisherman. I wasn't a scholar. I wasn't a speaker. I was just a fisherman who talked way too much. <laughs> and then Jesus Christ walked by my boat one day and he said, come follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And I identified myself with Jesus Christ and it changed my entire life. It changed my relationships. I got thrown in with these 11 other guys, some of whom I didn't even like at all. They're always telling me to be quiet. But I had a lot to say. And I wanted to be in charge. And I wanted to lead. And so we struggled and we fought. But we listened and we learned. It changed our relationships to one another. It changed our relationships to the world. And after Jesus Christ died and he rose again from the dead, he said to me, Peter, Feed my sheep. Peter, love me. Peter, follow me. Peter, serve me. And he named me an apostle. That is one who is sent. I was chosen for a particular purpose that I would go and proclaim the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so I traveled the world and I proclaimed Christ. It changed me. And I'm writing to you, this group of people who have been changed because you're now identified with Christ. You don't fit in any longer, just like I don't fit in any longer. Notice he says, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. You're exiles. You're aliens. You're strangers. You're misfits. And literally, he's talking about someone uh, who, who doesn't have a citizenship in this place. And it may be that Peter is referring to people who are, in fact, not citizens of these areas, but I don't think so. I think he's using it figuratively. He's saying, Christians, you don't have a citizenship in this world any longer. Your real citizenship, your ultimate citizenship is in heaven, as Paul would say in the book of Philippians. And so you're always going to be longing for home. Now that you belong to Christ, there's something in you. You're just not going to be fully satisfied with everything in this world. And you're not going to fit in in this world. If you've ever traveled overseas, you've felt this. You're not a native speaker of the language. You struggle, you try, you pull out your little book and you ask for the bathroom. Where is it, please? (laughs) But you're lost and you're struggling and you don't fit in. And you don't know the culture and you wear different clothes and people look at you funny. You don't fit in. Peter's saying, I'm writing to strangers, aliens, exiles, misfits, those who don't belong in this world. Those who are longing for another home. Those who are dispersed, he says. You are aliens of the dispersion. And this again was a term that was used to the Jewish people. They were dispersed, remember, because they broke the covenant. But the church was dispersed so that it would take the gospel to all nations. You don't fit in. And so you're going to live differently. And sometimes the world is going to look at this different lifestyle and they're going to say, you know, that's pretty good. That that works. Because living like Jesus Christ, it does actually work. It is wisdom. 
And Peter's going to address that. That should be the normal response of the world, and sometimes that's what you're going to get. People are going to look at your life and say, wow, that, you know, that works. Tristan and I have family members and friends who, they're not believers, and they look at our lives, and, and they have to say, well, you know, you're doing something right. But then sometimes you're going to live for Jesus Christ and it's going to be so uncomfortable for those around you that they're actually going to hate you and persecute you because of Jesus Christ. And even then you can be right in the middle of the good life. Because God doesn't rescue you out of every suffering and temptation and trial and every persecution from the world. He doesn't reach down and say, no, 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 don't do that to my people. He says, no, my people stay because I've scattered you. I've put you everywhere on the face of the earth. For a mission, you are here to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're here to imitate Jesus Christ, to be salt and light. So people will look at you and they will see that is how life should be lived. And sometimes they'll accept it and sometimes they will reject it. And this is what Peter is going to drive home throughout the book. To the degree that you identify with the world, that you live like the world, you will experience temporary pleasure. There's no denying it. There, there are passing pleasures of sin. To the degree that you identify with the world, you will temporarily experience enjoyment, but you will never, ever be satisfied because this is not what you were made for. God will not let you be satisfied because you are different. But to the degree that you identify with Jesus Christ, that you imitate Jesus Christ, you will experience joy and fulfillment and peace and satisfaction even when you are suffering. But it only comes when you imitate Christ. So who will you choose to imitate this semester? Whose pattern will you follow? Will it be the pattern of the world or the life of Christ? Let's pray. As we're bowed together, there may be some of you who have never ever chosen for the first time to say, I want to identify with Christ. Let me encourage you, right where you're sitting, just speak in your mind to God. That's what prayer is. You don't have to even say it out loud. You don't, your eyes don't even have to be closed. Prayer is speaking to God. It's calling out and saying, first, God, thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to die for my sins in place of my sins, to pay the debt of my sins. I accept his payment on my behalf. The moment that you do that, Jesus Christ removes the debt of your sin and his blood covers you and you're permanently permanently established in a relationship with God that cannot be broken. Let me encourage you, if you've never done that, right where you're sitting, to ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior. For those of you who've already made that decision, for all of us, we we are constantly wrestling with the temptations of the world to identify with the world rather than identify with Christ. And we need to refresh and renew our commitment constantly to live for Jesus Christ. And as we begin a new semester, we need to remind ourselves we need one another. We need one another to remind each other that we shouldn't fit in. 
That we should live distinct and different lives, but we should still remain engaged in the world. We need to remind ourselves to to strike that tension. And we need to encourage one another as we're persecuted for Christ. We need one another. So if you are not connected with other believers, let me encourage you that that be your decision for this semester, to connect so that you can live for Christ together. Father, I pray that we would put aside the foolish pursuits of the world. I pray, Lord, that we would... uh, Cast down all the idols that are fleeting. I pray that we would learn to enjoy the pleasant circumstances that you give us, but not live for them. I pray, Lord, that you would put within us a holy fire, a passion to imitate Jesus Christ more than we ever have. And I pray that your spirit would inform us, teach us, guide us to know what does it mean to live for Christ in every area of our lives as students, as husbands, wives, parents, as workers, as neighbors, as friends, this is the imitation of Christ. Father, I thank you that you've given us him and you've given us a guide. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next week and we'll move on with First Peter.